0: Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast, tropics, and the newly launched Sunburst Chico, are now offering free overnight shipping on domestic orders of $1,000 or more. All California orders ship free. Berkeley Yeast, ordinary yeast made extraordinary.
1: This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. A volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Okay, let's go, 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 go! Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations.
0: Calm down, we're moving too
1: fast. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com.
0: Everybody knows that yeast plays one of the most important roles in brewing, no matter the style and recipe you choose. Yeast simultaneously influences flavor, aroma, acidity, brightness, and mouthfeel and brewing a lager is no exception. Discover our entire SAF lager range at Fermentus.com, where you'll find yeast for traditional to modern style lagers.
2: You can, you know, you can meter in uh, CIP chemicals, you can meter in gases, or in the case of like a, a pump, where you have a leaking pump seal, you're actually sucking air into the system. Venturi is kind of the energizer bunny of, of fluid dynamics.
1: This week on the show, Ashton Lewis describes various principles in fluid dynamics with practical applications in the brewery.
2: Hi, my name is Ashton Lewis. I'm the manager of training and technical support with BSG. Happy to be on here on the mbaa podcast.
1: You know, it it just occurred to me uh, that even though he's retired, I probably should have invited Alan Young to join us so we could go for maximum puns on this episode. I don't know. What do you, you know, I don't know. Maybe we should call him now. What do you think? I mean, he's, he's retired. He's probably not doing anything.
2: Well, I don't know. This is about fluid dynamics. And I, I think he's probably hanging out on the beach in Florida, maybe with a surfboard.
1: That sounds like him. I'm going to just let me just try though, just in case. I'm going to send him a text and just see if there's any off chance he might want to. That'd be awesome. Because I mean, you know, he's, you know, I mean, he is retired. It's not like he has anything else to do, right?
2: He's probably eating seafood. If if right. he's not surfing, he's eating a, a the. Text text.
1: Hey, Alan, how's it going? Doing a podcast with Ashton. Do you want to join us and make some puns? Question mark. All right. All right. I shot that off. We'll see what happens. Um, all right. So let's get into this. So, um, uh, do you want to start us off with some like definitions and history? I feel like that's kind of you usually do that.
2: Yeah. So, this presentation was uh, prepared about fluid dynamics. And really, what fluid dynamics is, is a study of how fluid flows, whether it's liquid, gas, or plasma, and the effect of uh, the motion on on energy and it's all fluid dynamics was based on classic Newtonian physics, and it really kind of first became a, a term in the 1700s, and it was introduced by Daniel Bernoulli, who was a Swiss mathematician and physicist. But he's really associated with this term of fluid dynamics.
1: Okay. All right. All right. So um, you know this. Bernoulli guy sounds pretty important. Do um, you want to talk about the equation that is uh, his namesake?
2: Yeah, the Bernoulli equation is actually used in a lot of different fields. It's um, I'm not a I don't I know enough about aviation to know that I I don't know anything about aviation, but pretty sure that that uh, Bernoulli is used to describe how uh, wings develop lift. But with fluid flow, what? What Bernoulli's equation uh, defines is a is something called a total pressure of a system, and the, the total pressure of a system is based upon uh, your your static condition, which is mainly your your static head. So that's a, a function of liquid height and also gravitation. So it's a combination of liquid density, height, and and gravitational uh, energy or pull. And then the other part is the kinetic. Um, energy and that's that's a function of uh, rho, which is the liquid density and, and velocity. So the total energy of a system can be defined by your static head, your 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 density, and then velocity. So if you're, let's say, we're pumping beer or pushing beer through a pipe, and the pipe diameter changes, the the pressure on the upstream side. Let's say we're going from a large pipe to a small pipe, the pressure. The total pressure on the in the pipe before the the reduction in size is equal to the the total pressure on the other side. But what happens in practice if we're going from a big pipe diameter to a small pipe diameter, the velocity changes. So by definition, when we have an increase in velocity when we go from big to small, the pressure on the the small pipe has to go down. So there's the, there's the pressure drop across, and that's that's basically the Bernoulli principle. And it can be used um, in a number of ways to uh, calculate pressure, pressure losses through systems.
1: But there's just one problem with the Bernoulli equation. What's that?
2: So Bernoulli, th- there's one glaring absence in the, let's call it the basic Bernoulli equation. And the glaring absence is friction loss. So when we're, when we're pushing liquid through a pipe, um, or even if you watch like river River water flow, you'll notice that the, the water in the center of a river uh, flows faster than the water along the banks because there's there's friction on the bank. So a river really is kind of like a, a cross section of a pipe um, or even, you know, water running through like a canal, for example. You you can see the velocity profile. So the, the Bernoulli uh, equation, in order for it to be complete, you have to know something about friction. And in order to determine friction, uh, there's this thing called the Reynolds value. And the Reynolds value is a unitless number that, in in kind of crude uh, terms, it describes how much turbulence there is in flow. And as the Reynolds number goes up, so does turbulence. And as Reynolds number goes up, so does the friction loss. So the Reynolds number is used to uh, determine your friction losses and, and piping systems. And it's also used to describe how liquid tumbles through a pipe and it's actually a pretty handy number uh, to use when determining if your if your pipes are being cleaned with um kind of a scrubbing action during cip
1: cool hang on just one second i gotta let this dog in one second yeah.
3: whoa 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 all right sorry. oh my god doesn't it sound like a dog uh, hey, <laughs> We let the dogs in. There he is. There he is. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: this is completely unplanned. This is awesome.
1: I told you he didn't have anything to do. He's retired.
3: Well, yeah, I just got back from Golden Corral. It's the two people <laughs> on. <long. laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, that's great. What?
1: How you been doing, man?
3: Oh, great. I mean, really fun. And uh, I, I really love these podcasts. And the last one we did was. Pretty, pretty well-received and unrehearsed like this one. So,
1: How, how, do, you know, how do you know that here. it was re- well-received?
3: Uh, well, actually, <laughs> I think there were three people that uh, yeah. reached out to me and said they, they listened to it. And
1: all right. It- all right. Um, cool. Well, glad you could join us. Um, I think our pun content is about to go up.
3: It's a dynamic, fluid conversation.
2: <laughs>
1: All right. So, uh, Ashton, before we were so rudely interrupted there, um, I guess, uh, uh, we were talking about the Reynolds number, but, um, one thing that's interesting about it is that, um, uh, maybe talk about how the, how it, where it gets its name from, because it's not really named for, uh, the guy that it should be named for, right?
2: No, it was actually developed by a gentleman by the name of George Stokes. And Stokes is known... Stokes Law. Yeah, Stokes Law. So that's a description of how particles settle. Um, but the Reynolds number was actually named... So it was developed, the idea was developed by Stokes. And the number was named by um, Arnold Summerfield in 1908 after a gentleman named um, Osborne Reynolds who popularized the use in 1883. So Stokes developed this idea... Reynolds popularized it, and then this dude named Arnold Summerfield gave it its common moniker of the Reynolds number.
1: Okay. Alan, now, do, you have, do you have any fun facts about George Stokes or Stokes Law? I, I feel like there's some, some good fodder there for you.
3: No, I just, uh, you know, back to the surfing reference here, I think uh, uh, that was interesting that that ended up being the, uh, the, the beach talk for uh, when you were super excited, you were stoked. There you I, go. <laughs> I don't know. The uh, Stokes Law, I still think it's not really settled whether uh, he came up with that.
1: <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. Um, all right. So tell us, I mean, I think most brewers have probably heard about Stokes Law, but um, do you want to give us a little more detail about it and, and kind of talk through how, why it matters so much in the brewery?
2: Yeah, but let's just back up real quick. So this Reynolds number is pretty easy to calculate. So if you know a li- if you know the density of liquid and you know its velocity and the pipe diameter and the liquid viscosity, then the Reynolds number is equal to the density times the velocity times diameter divided by viscosity. So the fact that viscosity is on, on the denominator side of this, that means that, um, that the lower viscosity have more turbulence when they're flowing. Now, Stokes' law basically is the, um, you can calculate the velocity of settling particles with Stokes' law, and Stokes' law looks at the difference in densities between, let's say, a yeast cell that has some density that's greater than beer, so you look at the difference in density, and it also um, is affected by the diameter of the, the particle that's falling and you can calculate, and it's also affected by viscosity um, of the liquid, and then you can calculate the velocity so unlike um remember when uh, Galileo got in trouble and he demonstrated that the density of a of a particle uh, falls through air at the same speed regardless of its uh mass or density yeah he was I mean basically almost like killed for that well um in Stokes' law, the density does matter and the size of the particle does matter. And it really relates to the friction of how the, uh, the yeast cell or whatever is falling to the liquid. So, Stokes' law is used for, like, if you want to calculate how long your beer has to gravity sediment or how many g forces are needed to accelerate your particle for clarification.
1: Give, give us some examples. How long, what's, if I just have yeast in a fermenter, you know, uh, how long does it typically take to settle?
2: Well, Alan, remember this when, um, when seltzers became all the rage So <laughs> riff on that, Alan, what's, what's a good seltzer pun?
3: Well, I, I would say it's clearly a, uh, a problem with seltzers to, uh, get them settled. It just is a permanent haze most of the time. Um, and, and it's interesting, you know, it's, it's like a pound of feathers or, uh, a pound of lead. Uh, they're just not going to settle it's it's uh i just think all the stuff we did with with seltzer was uh to try to get you know permanent haze out that just wouldn't go down to the bottom like yeast
2: yeah i I, i've got an old friend that his his favorite expression is gravity never takes a day off and that's true but the the issue with some uh beers and you know seltzer let's call it a a really distant cousin of beer the uh the yeast cells a lot of the yeast cells that are used for seltzer fermentation are are smaller they're about two micron compared to about say 10 micron so to answer your question john if you look at a particle a two micron particle and i've actually calculated this because i'm a geek if you look at (laughs) the sedimentation of a two micron particle in a 10 foot tall beer tank it takes about 160 days for that damn particle to settle wow Assuming that it doesn't flocculate, you know, doesn't no stick to other right. particles. And if you look at a, a 10 micron yeast cell, that 10 micron yeast cell will settle to the bottom of that tank. And a matter of, you know, I forget the number, but it's like 10 or 20 days versus 160 days. And that's, that's why. You know, the Stokes law is actually important. The other thing too with seltzers is that seltzers have a lot of nutrient added and the nutrients also have buffers. And some of those buffers are basically very, very, very small particles that don't dissolve in the liquid and they, they form like a silt that just floats around and never settles, settles out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, and then kind of taking your example a little bit further, what happens uh, if I take that unfiltered beer or seltzer and I run it through a centrifuge? That takes settling to the HNL, as Eugene Struthers would say, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, when you run it through a centrifuge, you have angular velocity. So the angular velocity is um, a function of the, the actually the angle of the, uh, the separator bowl itself. And the, the, the radius, you know, how long the, you know, how far that is out from the, the center line. So as you spin around an axis, you accelerate the particles under, you know, accelerated gravity. So in a centrifuge, you're going to generate thousands of G forces. So your, your sedimentation time goes from days to seconds. Uh, because the velocity is really high, and also the, the sedimentation path in the centrifuge is only a couple millimeters deep. Yeah. Within those uh, you know, plates that are stacked up in a, in a bowl. Cool. Or the disk.
1: Alan, do you have anything to say about the gravity of the situation here?
3: Well, I mean, any way you spin it, a centrifuge is the way to go. Okay. All right. Sounds good. But I, I would go clockwise.
1: All right. Um, and now, does that matter which hemisphere you're in? Is that like the drain thing?
3: Oh, yeah, it could be. Well, that's a different effect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes.
2: Uh, okay. I, I think I've got it on unreliable on authority that the Coriolis effect has no significant effect on whirlpool operations. But that, that is a common uh, legend and the, the lore of, of craft brewing. <laughs>
1: All right. Um, okay. Venturi sounds like another famous guy that we should talk about. Um, you know what else sounds like Venturi? When you open a valve to atmosphere on a small, small glycol return line that feeds into a larger header. Say that again. When you open a valve to atmosphere yeah. on a small glycol return line that feeds into a large larger header.
3: Yeah, and then that
1: you just hear the sucking sound because it's you've reduced the pressure in the pipe, and it you can open the valve all the way, and it just sucks air in.
2: Exactly. Yeah, and the Venturi uh, he was an Italian dude. So uh, Bernoulli sounds Italian, but he was he was Swiss. But uh, uh, Venturi's name was Giovanni Battista Venturi, and he lived from 1746 to 1822, and he actually applied Bernoulli's principle. Uh, to what became known as the venturi effect and really what you just described is basically john the the venturi effect where you flow liquid from a large diameter to a small diameter and you get we talked about before there's a there's a drop in pressure and with that drop in pressure there's essentially a suction that develops through the nozzle so you can use a venturi nozzle to inject stuff uh into a line You, you can you know you can meter in Uh, CIP chemicals, you can meter in gases, or in the case of like a a pump, where you have a leaking pump seal, you're actually sucking air into the system because of Venturi. But then we were kind of riffing on the Coriolis effect before, and there are Coriolis flow meters, but a more common kind of flow meter is the Venturi tube, where the, um, the, the Venturi principle is actually used as a method. You measure the pressure drop across the um, a nozzle, and that's proportional to velocity, and then you can calculate your, your flow rate. And the, the first uh, Venturi tube flow meters were actually built in the late 1800s, and they were used for uh, municipal water systems, and they were huh. really freaking big at the time.
1: That's cool. Yeah, I, s- I saw a picture of a huge one. Um, in a presentation that you gave to, uh, at a district meeting. And I was like, what the heck was that used for? Cause it was massive.
2: Yeah. The, yeah. That picture is actually a 60 inch yeah. um, diameter pipe and it was used for, uh, municipal water systems. I think that was actually maybe in, in New York somewhere, but yeah, that's been around for quite a long time.
1: Cool. I wonder. Do you know if there's any of those old ones that are like still? I've I've stuff that big. You have got to figure it's probably still in a line somewhere underground or something. You know, like wonder if they still exist.
2: They have to. Like New New York City. I mean, this is uh, that picture is late 1890s. The uh, the water system in New York City, you know, is older than that, or you know, parts of it are.
1: Yeah. Okay. Where else do we find Venturi in the brewery?
2: Well, one of my favorite places is in word aeration, and there's um. I think I can call them out by name because I, I think they really did develop the technology. But Esau Huber developed the uh, a device they called the Turbo Air, which was based upon the Venturi principle, and it's a it's a really clever um, way of aerating wort either with air or oxygen. And then there's also other uh, equipment suppliers now that use the same type of uh, nozzle for wort aeration. Um, another place and again this is um
1: well and then just to interrupt you that the, the, the uh, this very similar to that you also see the the pinpoint carbonator right that's another device that is doing the same thing but you're not adding oxygen in this time you're you're using it to carbonate beer
2: yeah the pinpoint carbonator yeah same same thing there's a reduction in the, the pipe diameter uh, those are used. Um, yeah, so you can use the aeration device for a carbonation device as well. Um, I've actually used them for homebrew before you take a, um, like a plastic tea. And if you, um, if it's a, a reducing tea, you can, you can design it to suck air and to wort line as it flows into the fermenter. But with, with dried yeast, you don't have to worry about that. But yeah, that's, um,
1: we, we used another, um, uh, this has just came popped into my mind years ago when I worked at Dominion, we would we had this like bourbon barrel uh, stout and so the 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 it aged in bourbon barrels, and so it was you know pretty much flat at that point and then it went into uh, stainless steel kegs uh, but uh, then the kegs needed to be carbonated. and so we would kind of batch that and so we would hook them up to this uh, recirculating loop with a with a car pump, and we would basically uh, put a CO2 line with a backflow preventer, um, on the suction side of the pump. And, you know, and, and, and we had like a set, you know, you recirculated at, you know, this speed for this many minutes and it it gets you carbonated.
2: That's cool. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. Sorry. I totally interrupted you there. Um,
2: no, that's, I mean, you, you were actually just showing how many uses Venturi has. There's another use and we can riff on this in a second, but you know, uh, and again, I think I'm calling out the the correct inventor here. When when Krohn's came out with their their so-called Stromboli kettle, and you got to really wonder what Krohn's marketing was thinking at the time, because there was the Stromboli, the Merlin, and then there was the the Pegasus uh Lauterton. So somebody was really creative on naming. But the Stromboli uses uh, the Venturi and a uh, shell and tube uh, heat exchanger to cause. Uh, better wort recirculation within the kettle. But more recently, uh, the Stromboli has been adapted where there's no uh, calandria. It's on smaller kettles, and they're basically just pumping liquid up through the venturi and getting really, really good agitation in the kettle. So by using that type of um, venturi within a kettle, you can can build a larger kettle with just um, heating jackets on the shell without having to go with an internal calandria because you get a better U-value uh, overall uh, heat transfer value. So that's, that's pretty, pretty cool.
1: Alan, have you had any Stromboli's with good U-value recently?
3: No, but it does sound like a good lunch, uh, a couple of beers and a stromboli. I did have a, uh, a really bad principal in high school, and we called him uh, Mr. Venturi because <laughs> he sucked.
2: <laughs> 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 uh. Coming up. Oh, I thought you were afraid of the sharks out there.
3: No, they're afraid of me, really. I eat sharks. Actually, they're pretty good.
1: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas there's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors the next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies be sure to thank them for their generous support
0: Sponsored by the folks at BSG who understand that the best beers start with the best ingredients. That's why all BSG hops are hand selected for quality by their expert staff. So you can trust you are getting the very best hops from the very best growers in the US and around the world. Discover BSG's extensive range of domestic and imported hops at bsgcraftbrewing.com/hops.
2: Get to know Proximity Malt.
0: positively impact your process product and profitability with actionable insights from brew IQ the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash mbaa to start saving time and money today
1: grist analytics is the leading quality and production control software platform built by and for craft brewers The unique cloud-based application gives the unprecedented ability to capture data your way and correlate it across the brewery. Get real-time feedback on the brew deck, analyze correlations from the lab, and track brewery performance while listening to this podcast. Grist Analytics helps you skip past hours of sorting through spreadsheets and paper logs to making informed decisions that drive efficiency and deliver better beer with confidence. GristAnalytics.com Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the US. The Lupulin Exchange, one stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Ontario presents Beers in the hop field at Bench Brewing Company in Beamsville, August 17th. The District St. Paul-Minneapolis Summer Meeting is August 17th at Ecolab in St. Paul. District Carolinas has a Summer Technical Meeting August 25th at Boonshine Brewing Company in Boone. The District Northern Illinois Summer Bash is August 25th at Crust Brewing in Rosemont. District Western New York is holding a summer meeting August 25th at Myers Creek Brewing Company. District Ontario's 80th anniversary golf tournament is September 8th at the Springfield Golf and Country Club in Guelph. District Pittsburgh has a technical conference September 9th at Pittsburgh Brewing Company in Creighton. District Milwaukee meets at the Molson Coors Miller Inn September 21st. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. District Michigan's fall meeting will be at Founders Brewing in Grand Rapids October 19th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you.
0: Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to MBAA.com and use code BEER2023 when you join.
1: Now back to the show.
2: And there's... So there's two other really cool things with Venturi because, I mean, it's like Venturi is kind of the energizer bunny of, of fluid dynamics. It just you know keeps on going and going. You can use Venturi for chemical uh, eductors where you can literally pull in chemical. Um, and that's the, the flow rate of chemical coming into a Venturi is a function of the velocity through the pipe. And another, this is not... But that's you. like your
1: like dosatron pump for like your line lube on your on your bottling line and stuff like that, right?
2: Well, a dosatron would be actually a, a pump. In this case, you would you would simply have um, literally like a hose as your on your suction side of the venturi nozzle, and you could drop that in like a, a bucket of chemical.
1: Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. I'm thinking of. Maybe maybe that's the same thing. Maybe it's not. The one I'm thinking of is the dosatron. Like it just has a a vinyl tube that hangs from it down into your chemical. And then it's sucking that out of the, out of the drum and dosing yeah. it in, uh-huh. into the water in line.
2: Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really clever. Cause it, you know, there's no, no moving parts. It's just a simple nozzle. Yeah. And another example, this is not for, uh, as far as I know, these are not used in fermenters. They could be, but if you weld a Venturi nozzle into a tank and you can put them in the bottom of vessels and pump, um, through a nozzle you can you can mix really large tanks like million gallon tanks with um just a small recirculation pump going through the the venturi nozzle so a lot of different applications
1: cool all right um alan do you have a lot of different applications right now maybe to like retirement homes or something like that
3: well yeah um i'm i'm just kind of fascinated by this uh this Venturi idea. Um, I'm, I'm going to work on that.
2: Have y'all ever seen those, uh, those wine uh, aerators where you pour like red yeah. wine? Yeah. That's Venturi too. Yeah. Huh. Cool. Alan was talking about sucking those things. They yeah. suck really well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. All right. Um, well, we probably, that's probably not an exhaustive list of all the places that we can find Venturi in the brewery, but I, I think it's pretty good. So let's move on um, and talk about pumps. Uh, How does does Bernoulli help us with pumps in the brewery?
2: Well, Bernoulli, if we go back to really what the practical application of Bernoulli is, is calculating the pressure drop of the system. So if we're pumping, let's say we're pumping wort from a a whirlpool through a heat exchanger into a fermenter, we have got a lot going on there. We have really hot wort. Um, which is subject to boiling, we have a a high pressure drop across our heat exchanger. And then as our fermenter fills, we have a variable height situation. So our our pressure drop on the tank side is increasing as it fills. So if we want to size our pump pump properly, we need to be able to model or, or calculate the pressure drop of the system. And that's what Bernoulli allows us to do. So for pump sizing, we need to know the total head. And that's that's what Bernoulli allows us to calculate.
1: Do you want to talk about like some of the, the things that you, we experience with pumps like you know cavitation is, a, is one that I'm sure pretty much every brewer has experienced at some point. Do you want to talk about what's going on there?
2: Yeah, and that's really I, I kind of set that up with the hot word application the The pump that's most likely to cavitate in many brew houses is the hot work pump that's on the discharge of the whirlpool. And what happens in cavitation is there's there's a there's a a value called the net positive suction head required, and what what that means is the amount of suction head required at the inlet of the pump to prevent the work or the whatever liquid we're pumping from boiling. So that's what we call the net positive suction head required, and that's actually a function of the pump impeller itself, and the the suction head required increases as the flow rate goes up through the pump. So one way to limit cavitation is to slow down the pump. So let's come back to that in a second. That's the NPSH required is a function of the pump speed and the impeller uh, design. The net positive suction head available, the NPSH available is a function of the hydrostatic head above the pump inlet the friction losses that occur coming into the pump inlet, and the work temperature in the case of of work. So as the work temperature increases, um, as we have more friction, let's say elbows or piping restrictions or increased flow rate, and as the whirlpool becomes less full, there's less hydrostatic head pushing on the, the suction side of the pump, then our available suction head goes down. And when the suction head available is less than the suction head required by the pump, then we have cavitation. And that's when it sounds like you're pumping rocks or your, your pump really doesn't sound happy. And it's more than just a, you know, a, a sound problem. That's the sound of microscopic uh, implosions occurring inside the pump. And over time, that'll lead to damage to the impeller. And it also wreaks havoc on pump seals.
1: And in some cases it's probably not very good for the liquid that's in there either. Cause isn't it essentially boiling?
2: Yeah. And it, yes, absolutely. You know, microscopically it's boiling and it's literally imploding, you know, that happens like on ship propellers and so forth. Um, and it, it, it causes quite a bit of shear on a, on a microscopic level.
1: Um, so going back to that example of your, um, your hot work, uh, pump, uh, where that happens a lot. So, and you talked to, I think you kind of alluded to this as it you want to slow down the flow um, it, the The reason a lot of the that happens there a lot too is those pumps are often not sized correctly, and um, if I recall correct me if i 'm wrong the the solution there is to basically put in a um, a, a larger pump that's going to go at a slower speed right
2: yeah that's one that's one solution that works the other solution is to look at the NPSH required on the pump curve, and not all pumps have the same uh, NPSH requirements. So selecting a pump with a low suction head requirement uh, will benefit that. And then the other thing, which is really critical, is when the brew house is designed to give enough elevation between the outlet of the whirlpool and the inlet of the pump to essentially design out cavitation. And And also,
1: don't you want to have the the inlet be substantially larger than the outlet, doesn't that help you as well?
2: It, it can. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Cool. Um, all right. Anything else you want to say about pumps and Bernoulli? I feel like we probably got that covered pretty yeah, well. We got that covered. All right. All right. Ashton, stop. It's hammer time. <laughs> More specifically, it's water hammer time, which is probably my least favorite type of hammer.
2: I feel Alan warming up to something here.
3: No, I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling here on mute, um, but yeah, I, I definitely uh, have experienced water hammer, and it is it is uh, something that you know you guys probably have to go to great heights to deal with it. <music>
2: All right. Water hammer is shocking. I mean, no pun intended. It it literally uh, sends shock waves through piping system. And what what water hammer really is is when when liquid flow is rapidly stopped. So if we're cruising along fat and happy through a pipeline, and somebody like slams the door shut in front of us, you know the water is going to immediately stop flowing, and then all of that energy is going to be redirected. In the form of a shockwave backward through the pipe so the the thing that drives water hammer or the the variables that drive water hammer are liquid velocity uh, the line pressure um, itself so the initial pressure uh, the upstream pipe length so the longer the pipe the more hammer and then how fast the the, the valve closes and it's in terms of seconds that's how the calculation goes and based on that you can calculate a water hammer so as an example if we're flowing cip through an inch and a half pipe at 50 gallons a minute and we've got a valve that's located 150 feet downstream of the um of the pump and our inline pressure is 30 psi so you know pretty normal 50 gpm inch and a half 30 PSI, 150 feet to our valve, if we close a valve over a 0.3 second duration, so that'd be like a butterfly valve on a pneumatic actuator that's got a spring return on it, the The spike pressure is 412 PSI. Yikes. Yeah.
1: And, you know, you might not be working with pipes that can handle that, right? <laughs>
2: Well, your pipes probably can handle it, but if you have like a sight glass in line, and I have seen sight glasses um, explode because of water hammer, uh, or even like loose fittings, like let's say a tri clamp fitting that has kind of jiggled loose over time, um, you know, those can break free. The other thing that I've seen in dairy plants that have just repeated water hammer are pipe hangers that literally break off the pipe supports.
1: Yeah, it's not good when you see a pipe move because of water hammer, <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs> which I have definitely seen before. And you know, going back to that uh, to the equation you were kind of describing with that valve closing time um, being such a uh, you know a critical variable there. I mean, that's the one thing most brewers can actually control in this scenario. You know, if you're working in a small manual brewery, right, is the you you'll feel that the speed at which you close that that butterfly valve or that ball valve or whatever, you know, just whether you do that kind of gently, it can still be somewhat fast, but you know, whether you do it kind of gently, or if you really just slam it shut, you're, you're going to feel the difference.
2: Absolutely. And you know, the, um, when I, in my old life, we, we did a fair amount of automated installations and you can, you could logically design out water hammer through how, you know, valves close and pumps turn off and, you know, all the kind of the functional, Description of your process um, programming, but there's a, another way—a a cheater method on on valves that that have spring returns on them—is to put a an exhaust speed controller, and it's it's considered a cheater because it's they can go out of um, tune. But if you if you put a an exhaust gas speeder on pneumatic actuators, you can slow down how fast the valve closes and essentially eliminate water hammer from from those types of valves.
1: Do you want to talk about, I'm sure you've probably seen, you can get like, I think they call them like hammer arresters or something like that. But there's like basically like a muffler, for lack of a better term, that you can put in a pipe for this purpose as
2: well. Yeah, those work really well. Uh, hammer arresters are usually used in, in utility lines, like, you know, water lines. But yeah, it's basically an expansion tank that's got kind of a rubber rubber bladder in it that allows the water that that pressure spike to accumulate and then dissipate those work really well the other thing and you know 30 years ago these weren't real common but they're becoming more and more common and breweries are uh, mixed proof valves or so-called seat valves and in the old days uh, a lot of these seat valves were installed with what's called a flow over configuration and they were really put in like this to make up for weak springs on the actuator and that's uh, you see this a lot in dairy plants where they have flow over designs, and what happens is the the liquid that's flowing over top of the seat accelerates how fast the uh, the seat closes down, and they slam like crazy. But with seat valves, you really want to f- you want to flow against the seat closing, so as the valve is closing, um, the f- the velocity it actually kind of slows down as the valve closes, and that really um minimizes the risk of water hammer and seed fowls.
1: Cool. A- Alan's texting me says he has to be quiet because there's somebody weed whacking outside of his uh wh- wherever he is there. So um he will outside pop, of the, pop back in outside of the retirement home. home yeah. <laughs> 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 he'll pop back in whenever uh whenever that's gone. Um anyway, so um all right this is one of my favorite topics in brewing. Um, What's going on when a fermenter cools down super fast? So from like fermentation temperature, it cools down super fast from like, you know, 68 down to like 38 degrees Fahrenheit. But then it seems to get stuck at 38 for kind of a long time before it starts to drop further on down closer to 32. What's going on there, Ashton?
2: Well, basically what's going on is it's kind of like a lake where you're cooling down and heat rises. So in in the case of water, if we look at water as a model, the maximum density of water is at four degrees Celsius or thereabouts. Um, So that's the maximum density of water, which means that heat rises as long as the temperature is greater than four Celsius, 39 degrees Fahrenheit. When the water temperature drops below four, then heat falls. So the warm liquid actually falls in the bottom of the tank, and the bottom of the tank will basically normalize at about 39 if it's water. In the case of beer, it's about 38. And unless you have cooling jackets on the bottom cone, the bottom of that tank will never get colder than the maximum density of the liquid. So if the, let's say the maximum density of water is, is uh, four degrees Celsius, then the bottom of the tank will always be four Celsius unless you cool from the bottom. Now, in extreme cases, let's say you've got a temperature probe that's located in the shell of the tank, but the heat transfer is above the temperature probe, and there's no cooling on the cone, which was typical in a lot of older, small fermenters, Old yep. then the top of the tank would freeze because that probe never registers any temperature less than 38.
1: Right, right. Yep, I have definitely seen that. <laughs> <laughs> um all right, cool. Um anything else you want to say about that um about that inversion or anything else? I guess well, I guess a a, a good thing to talk about there would be sort of just like, you know, what sh- what do you recommend for brewers who are thinking about new equipment, what should they look for in terms of the placement of glycol jacket locations when they're trying to decide about making a purchase on new equipment?
2: Yeah. Whether it's new equipment or even buying, you know, used equipment that's on the market. Um, I would look for personally, I would look for a minimum of two probes in a tank. That's just, that's me. But I mean, a lot of tanks don't have two probes, but preferably there's going to be two probes and the top probe should be in the vicinity of the top jacket, ideally. And to me, even in a small fermenter, I'd like to have two zones on my fermenter. So I would like to have a jacket that's near the, the top of the liquid. And unlike uh, heating jackets, which really don't even have a rule about this, but you know, a lot of people don't like to have a heating jacket exposed um, above the liquid level. But I don't know that that's really a problem with with low-pressure steam. But with a fermenter, for example, if you have part of the heat transfer that's not covered by beer, it's not a problem. You know, you're know, you just cooling down the steel. So I want to have my top jacket um, cover the, the beer. And then I want my second jacket to be on the lower portion of the, the tank and also on the cone. And ideally, if there's two probes, you can control your upper jacket with your upper probe and your, your lower shell section and your cone section uh cooling with your lower probe that way you can prevent you know you can you can toggle you have to have two different solenoid valves or or glycol valves whatever type you use you need to have two different valves that are controllable to have that kind of zone control but that would be my preference
1: i I can't tell you how many times i've seen like a pretty expensive installation where folks will either like just daisy chain these glycol jackets together they'll have like you know four different zones and they just like connect them all together and i'm just like why why would you do that (laughs) don't you want to have individual control um you know one of the i think one of the one of the most powerful things you can do um in uh when you're conditioning a tank is if you're trying to do a vdk rest uh uh, but you also want to you've got yeast settling out you know, during that whole time is to be able to throw on uh, light cooling on the cone, you know, while you don't have cooling turned on up high, you know, that's, that can, that can really, um, improve your maturation process quite a bit. So. Um, well, the other thing
2: too, it's interesting, you know, I read about this all the time and it's unfortunately it's infiltrated the, the lexicon of home brewers, this so-called cold crash. Well, you know, I, I don't know who invented this but you know the the notion of you know going from fermentation temperature down to zero Celsius as fast as you can yes that's common but not all beer styles benefit from a cold crash especially like you mentioned vdK rest if you want to cooler fermenter from um, let's say fermentation temperature to an intermediate temperature without uh, zone control you really have no way of of hitting an intermediate temperature correctly, you're always going to have severe uh, stratification without multiple zones.
3: Uh, I, I used to see that a lot. I think um, some brewers are just dense. <laughs> That's right.
1: That's right.
3: <laughs> just for the, just for the price of some individual valves. Yeah. Uh, In the grand scheme
1: know, of things, it's nothing, right?
3: They give up all this control and, you know, you can have this inversion where I've seen fermenters, they open up and there's ice bands, you know, water that freezes out of the beer and the upper comes sliding down, you know, crashes all over the place after it thaws out a little bit. Uh, and it's just kind of like a common thing to like, well, we're just chilling the whole tank. And it, it, yeah. it's like you were saying earlier, Ashton, about just in a centrifuge when you have a V cone at the bottom, it's a different pressure and dynamic than sidewalls with, with beer going straight up. So uh, it's very important to really look at that dynamic and balance that glycol field so you have some control over it. And it doesn't have to be very automated. I've seen guys just go and kind of uh, close down a valve to a trickle and then check the temp the next. But I, I think cold crashing is kind of dangerous because you you can not – it's sort of like pasteurizing a keg of beer with a, a a deck pasteurizer. It just doesn't doesn't get to the center core at the same time as the outer jacket walls without any upward convecting. So I, I liked a ramp down profile, uh, one allowing for some uptake of VDK precursors, but also just a more even accurate temperature drop uh, over time than just super chilling full on to the outside band uh, and the center of some of these tanks would be a completely different reading. If you could get a probe in there.
1: Yeah. Plus it's also super energy intensive. If you're trying to crash something down, you know, really fast, that's going to be a huge load on your chiller.
2: And what Alan just said about the, the, you know, you're measuring uh, the beer temperature. Most thermal probes only stick in in the beer, maybe six inches, maybe one inches, but you're, you're really measuring just the the temperature close to the heat transfer zone, and you've got oftentimes you know f- several feet of liquid to the to the center of the tank. The, the most clever installation I ever saw was a brewery gang, and I don't know if they still use this design on newer installations or not. But they're using a three way mixing valve to blend their their cold glycol coming from their chiller with let's call it warm glycol exiting the uh the heat transfer jacket on the fermenter so if they were let's say cooling from uh 20 celsius down to uh 10 celsius and instead of using negative four degrees celsius glycol they would basically use this blending valve to have their their glycol temperature just a little bit below the beer temperature really 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 cool. not not cheap at all, but it required a pump on each tank and blending valves and so forth. But very, very cool installation.
3: Yeah. Oh, I think that was a pun, Ashton. That was an accidental pun, Alan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, so, talking about that ice crashing down, uh, Alan, I remember uh, years ago when I worked early, uh, early in my career, when I worked for Bill Madden up at Cap City, I remember him, I think it was him, telling me about they, were, they had uh, somebody had like, just they had emptied a fermenter, and somebody had like you know stuck their head in the manway to look around, you know, af- as they were hosing it out or whatever. And like immediately after they pulled their head out, this like guillotine of ice comes like sliding right past the manway, <laughs> you know. Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's not how heading. you want, not not how you want to go. I don't think.
3: No. No. No, that's like the perfect murder weapon, isn't a bicycle and you know, yeah, yeah. The murder weapon's gone. <laughs>
1: um okay Uh, good um all right uh you know i think we talked a good bit about vacuums on on a previous episode but if we do that again here we just might save someone from the disgrace of imploding a tank so um let's let's talk a little bit about that ashton how does that usually end up happening to us in a brewery
2: real real quick and i won't spend any time on this but you know there's a common thought among some craft brewers and you know, brewers that might maybe have a pilot system is that a lot of this stuff, whether we're talking about vacuum or, or stratification, only happens in big tanks. But stratification occurs in all tanks. I've I've got some data that um, came from you know real life experience of a three hectoliter fermenter that had stratification in it because there's no cooling on the cone. So the stratification can occur in any tank as can vacuum, but usually with vacuum, it's a, it is a, a problem with larger tanks because larger tanks um, have less resistance of external pressure, which is what vacuum is. But the, the most common uh, vacuum failures occur from either following a hot CIP with a cold rinse, where you have a very quick uh, reduction in, in gas temperature within a tank, and that reduction in temperature results in a, a rapid change in volume and it forms a vacuum. Another uh, relatively common cause of vacuum failure is when you've got an environment full of CO2, so fermenter after use, and then you come and and clean it with concentrated caustic, and the CO2 goes from a a gaseous state to a solid state almost instantaneously, and you get vacuum failure. And then the third method of vacuum failure that's uh, fairly common is where a tank is being pumped out Let's say you're pumping from a fermenter to a lagering tank or a bright tank and you forget to open um, your gas valve. So you're usually you would pump, you know, or you'd have CO2 flow into your tank during racking. You forget to open the CO2 valve and now you're you're draining a, a tank without displacement gas and you get vacuum failure. So those are the, the common failures. Another related uh, kind of vacuum failure of all of these is if you have a vacuum in a tank, and your your vacuum relief device fails and it fails to relieve the vacuum, then you get implosions. And an example of a failed vacuum relief device would be a, a vacuum valve that's got schmoo on it from, you know, hop resins and, and yeast poison that's not clean during CIP. So your, your relief valve is not there for you when you need it.
1: Take them apart every time. Absolutely. Make it part of your SOP.
2: Yep. And really kind of a, a really tragic story of vacuum is um, really what happened with the um, the Titan submersible. That's essentially what happened there. was It was equivalent to a vacuum failure, yeah. where the you know the outside pressure of the ocean, the hydrostatic head, was so much greater than the internal pressure that 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 submersible collapsed. And that's exactly what happens when a beer tank fails.
1: I thought you were going to say the tragedy of the void that was left behind when, um, in, in the pun department when Alan left BSG.
2: Oh, that, well, that void is not replaceable for sure. Yeah,
3: right. Uh, <laughs> hey, Ashton, have you seen um, – I have only remember one uh, person telling me that they had a vacuum breaker on a, a water vessel, and it wasn't sized large enough to compensate for the uh, the amount of negative pressure. So it's still imploded, uh, dented in, basically. Um, so there, there's a calculation, I imagine, in there somewhere. And I think that was one that was overfilling, you know, in a, the loop of a heat exchange return city water kind of thing. So cold, uh, you know, it's interesting, uh, colder water running into hot and lots of play in there. It wasn't typical like uh, fermenter spudge or any of that kind of stuff, but the uh, the you know standard one and a half inch vacuum breaker was just too small to do the job. Uh, have you seen that where that's actually engineered to fit the potential failure? Yeah, actually, I, I forgot the over. Yeah, have that's mentioned. the
1: overflow is a classic one. Yeah, yeah, that that you don't think good. about it usually.
2: Yeah, if you overflow. I mean you actually open up several uh, cans of worms, Alan. So if you overflow a tank, like a water tank that has an overflow line that doesn't have a siphon breaker, you can you can put your water tank into a siphon condition and by overflowing it can suck down. So your your overflow line has to be vented to prevent a siphon. In my previous life, we would we would supply vacuum valves and the, the best suppliers of vacuum valves ask for your process condition in the most severe condition let's let's pretend you've got a, a fermenter let's say a 1000 barrel fermenter that has a 3 inch outlet on it the worst uh, vacuum condition is if somebody accidentally knocks the valve off the bottom of the tank and you've got free flowing liquid yeah and that's the most severe and in order to size the vacuum valve for that you end up with an enormous valve so normally vacuum valves are if they're sized properly they'll they'll work on all conditions, but usually the condition where a valve is knocked off the bottom of the tank is, is your highest risk of vacuum failure.
1: I like the condition where you have redundant vacuum breakers. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, Cool. All right. Um, I think we got that pretty good. Did you have anything else in that department you wanted to discuss or no?
2: No, I think we just, we know that vacuum sucks and we don't want to have our tanks implode.
1: All right. Alan, do you do you want to close us out with any last words of wisdom?
3: Well, when my vacuum breaks, I buy a new one.
1: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That was Ashton Lewis and surprise guest Alan Young here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for a direct link to Ashton's fluid dynamics presentation. My fist full of courage.